Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from MacBlue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities, healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country, immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun, and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Democracy-ish. I'm Danielle Moody. I'm Wajah Dali. And we are very excited to be joined today by historian of science and tech, Eric Conway, and co-author of the book, The Big Myth, How American Business Taught Us to Loathe Government uh, and Love the Free Market, as well as author of The Merchants of Doubt, which, by the way, love that. Love the play on love the play on the merchants. Um, so now I will turn it over to Waj to do our now infamous movie phone intro. Eric M. Conway is a historian of science and technology employed by the California Institute of Technology. He recently received a NASA History Award for, quote, path-breaking contributions to space history, ranging from aeronautics to Earth and space sciences. And he is an AIAA History Manuscript Award winner for his fourth book, Atmospheric Science at NASA, at a history. Uh, Eric, welcome. <laughs> Thanks for having me. That, that, that's, that's, that's why I do this, by the way, as, as Daniel knows, uh, yeah. just, to, just, to, just to flex with that movie phone voice. Uh, thank you for the book, uh, The Big Myth. Uh, we wish we had your co-author here as well, but you, sir, will suffice with the brilliance for both. Uh, it's, it's an important book. And it's a book that I think connects the dots for so many because I had no idea uh, how this myth of the free market was actually created by the business lobby. And you all take us on this journey, right? And, and I, and I want to start off with this, this chapter that you have in the book called The, the Tripod of Freedom in America. It's mm. civil liberties, democracy, and free enterprise to the point where you don't even blink. Someone says that and you just kind of nod your head. But you all say that's not even in the Constitution. And this is a, ninth, a 20th century creation by business lobbies. Take the DeLorean back for us. And how did this free enterprise myth get injected into the central nervous system of Americana? So it was actually a re response to the Roosevelt administration's New Deal. Um, during you know during the 1930s, um, the Roosevelt administration began various experiments in regulation, um, and, and we talk about utility regulation, for example, is a big thing um, in the 1930s. Electrical utilities of, of of things we all take for granted now. Um, 
and really put business lobby on on kind of their back foots. Um, and it's it results in Roosevelt, I should backtrack a little bit, actually had a lot of business support when he first came into office. Um, and they quickly soured. Um, if you think about it, we've again, we've generally all forgotten because FDR has been so beaten on by the right wing. But the reality was he was a rich guy. He was wealthy. He made his money in the stock market. Then he became a governor in New York. Um, he was he was very deeply invested in democratic politics, um, ran for president, of course, um, and set out to not end capitalism, but to save it through reform. Um, and it's the reforms the business lobby quickly decided they didn't like. They didn't like the utility regulations that he was constructing. They didn't like the banking regulations um, that we had until the late Clinton administration. We were operating under 1930s business rules um, and so on. So they began a pushback. Um, they tried a bunch of different things. They backed a candidate in 1936 who went nowhere, candidate for president in the 1936 election who kind of went nowhere. Um, and the revelation um, through the National Association of Manufacturers, who's kind of our key actor in this period, um, is in the late 1930s. They hit on this idea that in order to protect freedom, in order to protect democracy, they had to find a way and to protect business, they had to link business freedom to democracy. Um, and that's where the tripod of freedom comes from. The tripod was, as you mentioned, kind of at the beginning, um, freedom of religion, speech, um, is, and civil rights, except, of course, for Jim Crow. Um, <laughs> I like that. Except, I like of that course, small, for that Jim small Crow. Caveat. Except for that. Except <laughs> because they never mention small it. Small asterisk. We understand they never mention it. Um, I bring it up because, obviously, we have to, because it, it, you, this is kind of begins to give the game away. Um, that this tripod of freedom was meant to be serving, to self, really be self-serving, to serve the business community without really trying to fix the, the, the civil rights problems that were understood to exist even then. Um, but by linking freedom, by linking business freedom as one of the legs of the tripod, by they are essentially making an argument that if you take that leg away, the whole thing falls. You lose freedom. You lose democracy. You lose all the other rights. You lose America. Um, if you lose America, if you lose business freedom, um, and that they begin a, a, a big campaign organized around that in 1939, right before, of course, about 18 months before the U.S. entry into the Second World War. You know what? What's what's really interesting about this tripod? This. Um, the idea that business is essential to our democracy, the idea that business is essential to our civil liberties. Um, and the way that I'm trying to, I'm thinking about this in the context of how businesses are right now, um, how they are being, you know, you have the scandals with Target and Budweiser and the LGBTQ community. You have Disney, right, going head to head with the governor of, of, of Florida. You have business, right, in many ways, either capitulating to the far right and their whims and the and the, and the squeaky wheel of, of hatred, or you have, you know, or you have them fighting back. I, I want you to put into, into kind of historical context for us, like, it, 
what should be the role of business? Because it sure as hell shouldn't be in connection to our civil liberties, because I don't vote for the CEOs or the shareholders of businesses, right? I don't vote for those people. And they're how they are able to benefit from our consumerism, right? Other than receiving the product that I paid for, it isn't doing anything for me as a citizen of said country. So can you like talk to us about like the the what the role of business should be as mm. opposed to what it was that they have created it to be through this lobby. Well, so what's kind of the essential thread we follow um, in our book is the idea that many business leaders promote the idea of market freedom, right? That that markets um, should be free of government interference, um, which essentially means that businessmen should be allowed to run them as they see fit. Um, and actually, many of those leaders would have been afraid of exactly the kind of political attacks on business that you are talking about. But they thought they saw what Roosevelt was doing in the 30s as being one of those kinds of attacks. All right. Um, and, and so to some degree, roles have been reversed now. The American far right are the ones attacking business for exercising some of their prerogatives for for some of their freedom. Um, and so you're asking what the role of business should be. Well, the role of business should be serving their customers. Um, but at the same time, we shouldn't allow them to dominate the political system. Right? Mm -hmm. What we have grown up with is increasingly, right, especially in the current Supreme Court, um, the idea that once you allow money to be speech, to be protected free speech, then, you know, we essentially become a, a one dollar, one vote kind of country, which is not Thank at you, all. Supreme Court, by the what way. Was, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, yes. Uh, but that gets very far from our story. That's an outcome of this deliberate, most of a century long campaign to liberate business from government regulation. Our argument is that markets have always been regulated, regardless of who, of what, what period of human civilization you're talking about. You know, the the, the it, story that you said is very interesting because connecting yeah. it to what's happening right now in the present and why it's so topical, uh, we see the right wing trying to ban books. We see the right yeah. wing trying to control history. We see the right mm -hmm. wing banning DEI initiatives. We see the right wing yeah. specifically threatening and intimidating educators, specifically mm -hmm. public schools, and trying to eradicate public schools. But what you mentioned in the book, which I found was fascinating, is the intrusion of this money, not just in politics, but in education. Can you connect the dots and can I explain how they spent money to indoctrinate our children about the ideology of the free market in public schools? Yep, so yet another one of the outcomes of these campaigns, and we can start this one in the 1920s, there was um, an effort to um, finish electrification of the United States. Basically, electricity is created by private entities in the 19th century. Um, it spreads very rapidly to the city borders, and then it stops. Um, and so the benefits of electrification don't get out to the countryside. Um, and a lot of reformers, people who would have been seen themselves as, as modern progressives back then, wanted to use government, either state or federal, um, to electrify the countryside. Um, and the the electricity utilities, the businessmen, um, 
decide, well, they don't want that. They see it as socialist, mm. interfering with the prerogatives of business. And so they go on a lobbying campaign that includes um, creating materials, textbooks, and so forth for the schools, public schools and university level schools, um, to indoctrinate students into the mm. idea that private industry alone can provide the services that Americans need, and that anything other than private industry would be socialist and un-American and anti-freedom, and and they don't quite construct the slippery slope argument that we get in the 1930s, the tripod of freedom that I mentioned before. But this is where this whole idea of a text textbook campaign, for example, starts, and then but it they plant the seeds. The seeds are they planted. Plant the seed. Exactly. Yeah. They they begin planting the seeds there. Um, we even go back further. They didn't do a text back campaign around this, but the opposition, the effort to prevent regulation of child labor um, was even earlier and similar, except they don't get to this textbook campaign idea. From the New Yorker staff writer Vincent Cunningham, a keenly observed novel of a young black man searching for his place in the world amidst a moment of historic change. Great Expectations is about David's 18 months working for the senator's presidential campaign. Along the way, David meets a myriad of people who raise a set of questions. Questions of history, art, race, religion, and fatherhood that forced David to look at his own life anew and come to terms with his identity as a young black man and father in America. Inspired by the author's experiences working on Obama's 2008 presidential campaign, Cunningham uses a political campaign as his narrative backbone. Great Expectations will be one of the talked about novels of the year, Colin McCann. Great Expectations is available wherever books are sold. Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from Mac Blue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country, immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun, and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> and just, you know, Funny enough, here we are with the current uh, rules in Arkansas that have rolled back protections for child labor because apparently uh, we are in the nouveau 2020s, which is actually a throwback yeah. to the 1920s. Yeah. It, These well, babies can pull themselves up from their Oshkosh Bagosh baby straps, Danielle. Yes. Yeah. Stop coddling 19th them. 19th century man. It's, it's 19th century all over again. It's... um. D depressing and demoralizing and i wondered when <laughs> naomi decided it's naomi that decided we needed to deal with child labor and this was years ago of course because we didn't know any of this would happen and it's like well she was prescient maybe she saw it coming <laughs> but it, it's it's so you know i i i, I want to talk about that for a minute because the the child labor piece that we are seeing get traction on the far right right now is something that is also 
intertwined with, um, you know, racism and white supremacy. It isn't their children that they are talking about. It isn't white children that they're talking Mm -hmm. about that are going to be working overnight at the McDonald's. It isn't white children that are going to be at the meat packing plant uh, working until 2 a.m. with uh, equipment that could take off a limb, right? And so I, I just wanted, if you could speak to what differentiation you have seen with the 1920s and this idea of child labor that then had an entire uh, lobbying movement to Mm. push away from, and then how we find ourselves back there also at the similar time around, you know, our anti-immigrant policies that these same states are pushing. Well, so the the, the, the way they went about pre- trying to prevent regulation of child labor in the first place was a family-based argument that by inserting the state between parents and child, um, you were taking away the, 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 the family's freedom, by which they really meant the father's freedom to, discern, to determine you know, what his, his, his sons and daughters could do. Wait, wait, um, Eric, are you talking about parents' rights? Yes. Yes. That's exactly the way this was fought in between really 1890 and and the 1920s. Um, And so it didn't get into this idea of 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 immigrants. I mean, what I understand and I've not been able to follow it super closely is that they're mostly using immigrant children who have been separated from their families already Mm -hmm. and therefore basically the most exploitable labor possible. God. Yes, because um, there's no one. No one is coming no to, look for, to them, look for them, and no one is. Mm-hmm. No one cares. No yeah. one essentially, quote unquote, cares about them. Yeah, so right? that's so, different. Yeah. Right, that's about the yeah. as anti-family an, an argument in favor of labor that I can I can imagine. Right, so that's you ask for a distinction, and to me, that's it. Um, they've decided to weaken child labor laws because certain kinds of businesses want this sort of labor, um, and. What do you know? We have this kind of we have this unusual um, set of child immigrants, youth immigrants coming from, I guess, largely South and Central America, um, mm-hmm. who are extremely exploitable, um, and 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 apparently state governments are permeable enough to business interests to 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 go for that. Right, because of course you don't want these you know, these children, they need to be able to pull their weight. We don't want them to be a burden on the state's economy. And so we can't just put them into foster care after having, or school after ripping them away from their families that then we didn't even put together a fucking Excel sheet to figure out how we would reconnect these kids. So we might as well put them to work. Yeah. It reminds me of that movie. I don't know if you all have seen it called Snowpiercer. Uh, where you find out that this train that is keeping humanity alive, the the, the parts are disintegrating, Danielle, and you find out in the end, spoiler alert, that uh, the the supreme capitalist Ed Harris is now, instead of using new parts, literally using children. And the reason why he's using children is because they have tiny hands. Uh, and, and, and speaking about stories, again, and myths and fiction, uh, we oftentimes... We talk about MAGA, and we, we, we talk about Trump, and we talk about Bush, and we go to the 1920s. But there is a central figure in your book, which, which connects the dots to, to, to the dysfunction that so many people uh, are suffering from, and that's Ronald Reagan. And, and you talk about how big business invested in, in, in politics 
Talk to us how big business found their guy uh, in the 1980s or even before named Reagan and how that has led us to this moment. It's really General Electric that finds him. Um, G's a big actor in our story because G, you know, for the longest time was was one of the largest American companies. Um, in the 1930s, it was actually a progressive company. Um, it it was comfortable with its unions. It um, it's it's a CEO, in fact, um, was involved in the effort to construct Social Security, um, and. After World War II, it changes very dramatically. It gets new management, um, and it becomes violently anti-union. They have a, a, a gentleman um, by the name of Lemuel Bulwar who constructed a method of essentially labor union breaking, um, which involved internal propaganda, um, involved basically take-it-or-leave-it um, contracting. Um, and along the way... Bulwar and G find Ronald Reagan, who people remember as kind of a mediocre actor, um, doing late in late in his original movie career, um, really kind of B and C grade comedies and so forth. Um, and they rescue him. They just he's a very good speaker. I remember him as a child. He was a fantastic speaker, and he could persuade you of all sorts of terrible things. But G hired him to do exactly that, and they did two things with him. Um, one of them is they hired him to do a television call show called G Theater, um, which was a serial. Every week, it was a different story aimed at spreading, you know, the the gospel of G and of high technology um, and of freedom. Um, the second thing they did is they sent him around to G's factories, and they had factories in almost every state. And he talked to community dinners and to political leaders and so forth. Um, and this is throughout the 1950s. Um, he becomes a well-known American figure, um, not a political figure in that sense, right? He's just on a corporate speaker circuit. Um, he wasn't um, he wasn't an obvious presidential candidate in the 50s. Um, he doesn't decide to run for governor of California until the 60s. Um, and that, so his third career then becomes the political Ronald Reagan that we know when he becomes he, when he become he runs for governor of California on a platform you're not going to like. Um, one of the big concerns in the California electorate in in, in the early '60s was, um, and I'll, they don't put it this way, but it was was restoring the right of property owners to dis, to discriminate in housing sales. Okay, the, this would ban by the California Supreme Court. It's put back into a ballot initiative. I believe it was in '63. It wins by like 57 percent. Um, and becomes a major political issue in the state, and 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 again, the the supreme state and federal supreme courts ruled against it, and so it dies then. But it helps get Reagan into the governor's mansion. Mm. So discrimination helps yeah. get him into racism. The, the racism. Always they always right. put it in terms of property rights, though. That is the way you they they wanted you to think about it. It's the right of the property owner to do whatever the heck he wants with his property. Parents' rights. Property, property rights, rights, CRT. Right. It's always a choice of certain rights above other rights, right? Correct. Remember, because we always we live in a society of conflicting rights. There's no way out of that. And that's and you know, the way they wanted people to think about it. You know what's interesting, right? And I even think that, and and I would love for you to just explain it more in like a, a you know kind of business one hundred and one type of way. 
is the phrase free market, right? It gives, it gives, it presents the illusion, right? That there are all of these constraints, right? To business. When in fact, those constraints that we look at are actually regulations that protect consumers and protect workers from big business being able to do whatever the hell it wants, right? Like, so when we see all of these different lobbies that are set up to, you know, oh, we need to, we need to have deregulation. It always is about whether or not to provide workers with, oh, I don't know, like Amazon, maybe bathroom breaks or to, you know, to do away with the small print like the Biden administration just did with Live Nation and SeatGeek and all of these other ticket uh, brokerage that add on all of these fees that are lost in the quote unquote fine print. So it, oh, it's, also so it's, we have to give a shout out to the writer's strike. Oh, right. Yeah. Right. And so the, the writer's strike and the and what I just learned recently about the change of HBO to Max had everything to do with royalties that they no longer wanted to pay out to writers and creators. I didn't know that. Right. Jeez. Oh, yeah. I didn't so, know that. so 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 what what we what we learn right about this, quote unquote, free market has nothing to do with freedom of the consumer and the worker right? To not be violated yeah. by the corporation. So I just want you to like dig in for us a little bit more about what you would actually refer call this mm -hmm. because it isn't a free market, let alone the third leg on the stool of our yeah. democracy. Well, so that's why we call it business freedom, because really that's what they're arguing for. Um, they know as well as anyone else that mar there's no such thing as a truly free market. They're always constructed by people. And there's always someone who regulates it. Like I said, a even a black market's got somebody regulating it. It's the guys that break your knees. Mm. right? So what they're after is the ability to control market conditions themselves without interference from anyone else, not from mm. federal government, not from the state governments, not from consumers. When, when our story starts in the 1930s, there are no consumer regulations at all. Right. Those are a product of, of the 70s. All right, environmental rules are a product of the late 1960s. None of that even existed when they start this big fight for business freedom. They're concerned with labor rights that they mm -hmm. don't want to exist. Right. right? They don't want labor regulations. They don't want workplace safety regulations. I mean, mm. the, the the federal workplace safety rules themselves only date to the Nixon administration. Before that, if they existed at all, they were at the state level. Okay. So all this is about constructing businessmen's freedom to do what they want um, without so, – so you can call it a businessman's market if you want and not a free market because that is really what it is. It's about trying to build a society in which the owners of – businesses the capitalists control everything and it seems that's like the, it's, that's the goal mm -hmm. go ahead danielle you, no, you want I, to say I, something because i because i'm literally i mean it just i guess my, my the feeling that i have is you know sickness right mm. like i feel sick to my stomach listening um to all of the things that you're saying because when i hear like oh it is about the businessmen's freedom no it's about white men's freedom it's about wealthy white cis men's freedom yes. to be able to dictate you know, the rules. And so whether, whether they're in, uh, white, uh, in black cloaks on the Supreme court, whether they're in hoodies in, you know, on a tech campus, whether they're, you know, the oil barons, like it is the same 
rule. And I, and I think, you know, back to where, where you're talking about the early 20th century, the ideology of the right is about the fact that we would have never had this quote unquote industrial revolution. There would have never been a boom Mm. had there been regulation, right? That's their, like, honestly, like that's their thinking is that if we were worried about, you know, people that were building bridges dying and being cemented in place, if we were worried about oil rigs blowing and rivers going on fire, then like we wouldn't have the America that we have. So in, in their twisted dark fantasy, it is to go back to all of this predated rules. But tell us, Eric, if we actually did that, right, in the 21st century that we live in, what would America look like? Well, we've kind of proven that that dark, twisted fantasy of only 19th century kinds of growth work is wrong, right? The, the America reached its pinnacle of wealth and power as a regulated market state, not an unregulated one, right? We have, we have the broadest distribution of wealth, really, um, in the 60s, in the 50s and 60s, when unions were strong um, mm-hmm. and Rich there were high were tax taxed. rates. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That was part mm-hmm. of it. Um, and, and so we have historical refutation of that, all right? We know that that's wrong. And, and yet, each generation, our business leaders now have so bought into the free market ideal that they want to unwind, undo um, all of that to create, to restore the 19th century workforce, which was essentially um, enormous numbers of poor people with no protections and a handful of super wealthy elite, because that benefits them directly in the short term. Um, I would argue it doesn't actually benefit them in the longer term. Henry Ford, for example, despite his many faults, figured out that if his employees can't afford to buy his cars, well, how big's the market? Come on. Yep. <laughs> right? Yep. The answer is not big enough for his dreams. And so a, a, a better form of capitalism, and this is really what we're asking for, a better regulated and more humane form of capitalism result you would get through allowing more, um, you know, better worker pay and better worker protections and so forth. Um, And again, we've done this before. Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from MacBlue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities, healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country, immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun, and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. You know, you, mm-hmm. you it really leads up to my question that's been lingering in my mind, and Danielle and I were talking about it right before we recorded, is, you know, is there a better form of capitalism? Can capitalism mm-hmm. be moralistic? Can it have ethics? And I say this, Eric, because as we were recording this, Narendra Modi, the prime minister of India, who, by the way, was banned originally from coming to America <laughs> in 2005 because he was, in part, held responsible for allowing the anti-Muslim Gujarat riots 
that yeah. led to so many deaths and, and burned buildings, right? So he was not allowed in America, but that same man who was not allowed in America, since he's become prime minister of an increasingly Hindu fascist India, where it's just extremely repressive against all religious minorities, has been getting the red carpet. And on the DL here in DC, openly people are saying, listen, listen, what's happening to India and Kashmir is terrible. This is really bad for freedom. This is really bad for rights. But guess what? India is a big market. And you know what? We got to counter China. And so here's President Biden saying, you know what? For the sake of the market, for the sake of business, for the sake of the economy, for the sake of, you know, shutting down or at least weakening our rivals, give me a hug, Modi. How do you have cap- more, uh, morality and ethics mm-hmm. in this type of a capitalistic framework? I wish I could answer that question. We can have, um, as I said, we've, we've already shown we can have a more, more humane capitalism, but the big but is how do you get to it? Mm. Um, when we have repeated instances. This isn't the only instance in which the United States has decided to embrace a repressive government because it's good for business. We've done this. We did this with China for for the last several decades, right? We've done it with Saudi Arabia because we need the oil. Um, it that it, it it it's not a new story, um, and so what we um, try to argue with our work is that. We have to, you know, look at ourselves and fix our own forms of capitalism to make them um, more just um, economically and socially. And what and and then we have to find out how to export that version of capitalism instead of the version we've been doing for the last forty years, which was um, essentially to force other countries to eliminate their worker protections their state-owned industries, and so forth, because that's what we've been doing. Danielle, can I ask right. a quick follow-up to this real quick? Please. Which is, what is, how do we, con- look, maybe I'm the cynic uh, here, but I don't see these companies doing the right thing uh, unless it, it helps their bottom line. How do we convince them, Eric, that it is in your interest to have happy, well-paid workers? It is in your interest to have healthy workers. It is in your interest to have women be literate and given equal pay. It makes your workers more happy. It makes people more, more loyal. It helps your communities. It, it you know keeps people away from like literally uh, uh, going to the hospital and all that money that's lost in the healthcare system. And by the way, diversity, as every single study has shown, is very lucrative. It helps with the ultimate color, the color green. It is in your interest, dare I say, to be woke. <laughs> How do you convince business people of that is the question. Um, And really, it is a big question because we've now had um, a couple of generations of business leaders who have been taught that their only responsibility is to the is to the shareholders. shareholders. Right. The shareholders bottom line. So uh, there's, of course, the older version of capitalism that starts to die in the 70s was one in which uh, business leaders were expected to have community benefits as well. They were supposed they were expected to, you know, donate to the community, be participants in in their their lo- their localities and and in other words, be good citizens themselves. And maybe that's where we have to start. Mm. Um, but again, we'd have to start that at home because it's it's difficult for a country that has been 
busily destroying its own internal economy um, through shareholder value movements to then turn around and sell something else to the rest of the world. And we have to be our have to be our own um, cheerleader, light on the shading hill, whatever you want to call it. But that requires reforming business schools, really, I think. I think it really mm. has to start um, back in the business education. And so how, how to accomplish that uh, is the best thing we can do is to uh, try to talk to people about our book and all the other books that have been making this point now for, oh, I don't know, at least a decade or so that I've been seeing um, other people talking about various aspects of these um, of these kinds of problems that really you can have good business growth um, with better policies. I mean, it's just, you know, I, I think that what is wild is your book begins in, you know, the 1920s. Here we are in the 2020s and there is nothing um, roaring about it. It is like, it is as if, our capitalist structure, our democracy are all coming to like this whimpering end. Mm. And I, you know, Waj, with the question that you asked about, you know, can can capitalism have a have a moral kind of a- angle? And I just I don't think so. I don't think you would call it capitalism, right? Like you would you would have to call it something else because that is not how capitalism is structured. There needs to be or as or as we have been sold and told over the last several decades that there needs to be a permanent underclass. Mm. And so you have, you know, why is the right wing banning books? Why are they banning critical thought? Why are they restructuring curriculum? The the it isn't just about the erasure of black culture, the erasure of LGBTQ plus people. Um, it isn't just cruelty being the point. It is the strategic dumbing down right? Uh, that is happening so that you don't think about anything <laughs> bigger. You don't shoot for anything bigger, right? Than what is in front of you. Um, that's what access to education provides, um, are, are pathways and opportunities. And if you can narrow pathways and opportunities by narrowing thought, mm. then you remain in control. And that, you know, that, that to me is just, that's where we are. So I, I, I just, last thoughts for you, Eric, on that. Well, that was the point of the textbooks campaign, wasn't it? That, that went way back in the 1920s, they wanted to shape thought at the student level so that they wouldn't have to battle, um, you know, adults uh, believing these things that the businessmen did not want believed, right? That's the whole point of shaping um, educational curricula and as we've shown, it goes back to at least the 1920s. Um, you could, though, you could make an argument. You know, the, the basic point of of universal education was also about shaping minds. Um, the reason the Puritans did it was the reason. Well, the reason my Puritan ancestors taught everyone to read, and the reason they did not teach the slaves to read is that they wanted the Puritans wanted, they, uh, they were Protestants, right? They, they wanted everyone to come to know God through personal reading of the Bible. So you had to be able to read it. But they didn't want the slaves educated for exactly the same reason. Yep. You know, it, it all goes back full circle. And on this program and the show, you know, Danielle is a former educator. We harp on the, the attack on public schools. And we harp on the attack on the public education system that has been going on after Brown versus Board of Education, and what's, which is on steroids right now. 
And, and I really appreciate, Eric, that you came on our show and talked about how this indoctrination and grooming begins in the schools. And, and I want to remind folks that there was a book which later got turned into a movie that was celebrated by America called Grapes of Wrath, which oh, talked yes. about workers. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah. if you wouldn't get that book published or probably released now. That would be seen as a woke communist tract to make your child into yep. transgender. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> it, it goes back to the education. It goes back to the schools. It goes back to the values that you teach your children in your home. And it goes back to books like yours that uh, explode these myths and connect the dots. I, I recommend everyone who's listening to please read it. Uh, it goes into depth. Uh, uh, we just touched the surface here. And thank you and to your co-author for the work that you've been doing. The book, again, is called The Big Myth. And our guest today has been Eric Conway. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Democracy-ish. I'm Danielle Moody. And I'm Ajatha Lee. And we will be back next week if, in fact, we have a country left. Inshallah.